Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Jonathan Tepperman, FP's Editor-in-Chief. We're taping today from Abu Dhabi, where it may be late fall in Washington, but it's a balmy 95 degrees outside. I'm delighted to be joined in our makeshift studio in the bridal suite of the Intercontinental Hotel by three incredibly experienced diplomats and all-purpose global observers with some very big brains. With me are Lana Nusaiba, who comes from the UAE, but like me, she's now based in New York City, where she serves as ambassador to the United Nations. Bernardino Leon comes from Spain, but now makes his living here in Abu Dhabi, where he's the director general of the Emirates Diplomatic Academy, a career diplomat. He previously served as the UN special representative to Libya, among many other posts in the Middle East and elsewhere. And finally, we have Radek Sikorsky, who is currently based at Harvard, where he's a senior fellow at the Center for European Studies. Radek is a former journalist who also served as Minister of Defense and Foreign Affairs in his native Poland and as Speaker of Poland's Parliament. So since we're having this conversation in the Middle East, I thought we should take advantage of that fact by focusing our talk on the hottest region or issues in the region today, but to take advantage of our location by doing something that's much harder to pull off in Washington, which is namely explore how all of these issues look from here on the ground and not from the perspective of New York or Washington or the U.S. government. Now, of course, there are so many issues roiling the region right now that we're never going to be able to touch on them in, in a single conversation, but I'm hoping we can cover some of the big ones. So on that note, I'd like to start with Syria. In recent months, the international campaign against ISIS there and in Iraq has made huge gains. At the same time, the Assad government, which only held about 30% of the country two years ago, has taken advantage of the advances and its help from the Russians by increasing its grasp. By some measures, it now commands about 60% of the country. Lana, are we in or approaching the end game? And can we start to predict what a post-war Syria is going to look like? Thank you, Jonathan, for the nice, easy question to kick off the discussion <laughs> with. Uh, Syria. I figured I'd give you a softball. <laughs> Syria, I think, is uh, obviously one of the clear failings of the international community's collective ability to act to prevent uh, war and crisis and impact on human life. Uh, so with over half of the population, the pre-war population, affected, either displaced or killed, uh, or displaced several times, in fact, not simply just once, uh, the human cost of this crisis has been enormous. So I think with that as the premise as we enter year six of this conflict, I think that there is a uh, realization in the international community, and there is a definite impetus and urge from the Middle East region and the Arab countries that have a combined perspective on this, that there needs to be forward action in order to help uh, the Syrian people uh, decide a future for themselves that is viable and fair uh, to the people of Syria. And I think that's been missing, um, as we were talking before this started, Bernardino, the human element sometimes is forgotten in the great power uh, discussions uh, of what the end game, if you like, could look like. From our perspective here in the UAE, uh, of course, this is a decision for the Syrian people primarily. Having said that, as we know, uh, ISIS, as you've mentioned, and counterterrorism operations have been a priority for many governments, both in the region and outside, and rightly so, uh, because when vacuums are created in 
countries and enclaves, uh, such as in the Syrian uh, population spaces and the Iraqi ones, uh, we've seen the potentially disruptive uh, and negative effects for the region. So clearly that has been a frontline concern. Um, but I think more importantly than that today is that we need to see a return, a serious return to the political process. So while we were broadly speaking supportive of any initiatives such as the Astana process broadly um, that move towards uh, demilitarization zones and uh, you know, changing the military uh, status quo on the ground, I think that the reality is that's now run its course and we need to return to the political track. And the political track is the parameters are complex and obviously complicated. Uh, the Syrian opposition needs to unite and there's been huge efforts to try and help them move forward, both the Cairo group and the Moscow group. Uh, there needs to be a united Syrian negotiating front. The basis of any Syrian agreement has been outlined already accepted by the international communi community, which is the uh, Geneva communique and the relevant Security Council resolutions 2254 and others um, that really lay the basis, the foundation, if you like, for a political process that hopefully preserves a strong and unified Syria and a Syria with a political process that is chosen fairly by the people uh, and that doesn't allow for the kind of fracturing that we've seen and the human tragedy that we've seen over the past five years. So I think the impetus is there. The UN envoy uh, and the UN process, in our view, is one of the key games to steer that process. And he recently, in a press uh, conference at the UN, I'm sorry to take it back to New York, but he did outline that there would be a, another round of Geneva talks. He's mentioned the date of November 28th. But if I may, and I'm sorry to interrupt, um, the, the, don't the emerging facts on the ground make all of this um, and an ultimate pluralistic solution all the more unlikely? Facts on the ground are going to keep changing. They've changed over the course of the past five years, and we do have to take them into account. We can't help steer a political process that's uh, isolated from what's actually happening, and I think we saw that in the counter-ISIS operations, for example, which became a unifying factor for, for countries that maybe would not have necessarily allied in that. Uh, in that sphere. So obviously facts on the ground have an uh, impact, but I think we have to stay the course and maintain our commitment to principles that have already been agreed and accepted by all the parties, such as the Geneva Communique, mm -hmm. such as the UN Security Council resolutions. Uh, and I think we need to move it back to a Geneva process where there is real political dialogue. Obviously, core elements have to be preserved of those uh, declarations. We want a pluralistic society. Minority groups must be protected. Uh, in the end, the decision on who governs Syria is a decision for the Syrian people from the vantage point of the UAE. Mm -hmm. uh, but there needs to be a fair process that allows Syrian people to engage in But that. who's going to drive that uh, forward? I mean, the, the United States is clearly less interested now than it was when uh, John Kerry was, was uh, uh, Secretary of State in being the force that uh, brings the parties together and, and tries to knock heads together um, in the, the hope that uh, uh, a solution can be negotiated. Who's, who's mm. going to take that role mm. um, and take, make it their responsibility to, to make the conversations actually happen? Because the UN, of course, can't do it on its own without real support, muscular support from its member states. Mm. I'd actually push back a little bit, Jonathan, and say that the United States not playing necessarily the role that it could have played in Syria happened in the President Obama's administration, not in the new administration. Mm -hmm. I think we all remember um, the red line that President Obama set. Sure. And we all remember when Russia stepped into the space that was left there. So I think this isn't, again, anything new. Um, I think uh, the U.S. is, the current administration is committed uh, on the issues that we all share 
collective beliefs or so around not allowing ISIS and Daesh and uh, terrorist fronts to develop in that space. Um, and I think there is an opportunity with um, the Russian presence to also use them as a leverage on the regime. Uh, but I think even more importantly, again, from the vantage point of the region, we have to start understanding that the world order today will rely more and more on burden sharing, mm -hmm. uh, to use the current administration's terminology, um, because these are issues that impact primarily our region. So actually, uh, despite figures to the contrary, most of the displaced population of the region, a lot of them are actually in the region, 36%. Only 17% are actually in Europe, 30% mm -hmm. are in Africa. Um, so, you know, the impact of these populations in the region is potentially uh, a, a time bomb if we don't take into account today uh, that these people have a right to access to education, a normal life, family life, opportunity, just like everybody else. 60% of the Arab world uh, is in the youth demographic. Uh, imagine those numbers when given the choice between despair and extremism or a model like the one we espouse in the UAE and other countries in the region that tries to offer a track to uh, responsible global citizenship. So I think that these are very, very important issues to us. They're not an isolation. Yeah, I, I think uh, uh, it is important you ask uh, Radek before Lana so that we look intelligent because after Lana, <laughs> there's very little we can, we can add. But having said that, a uh, um, couple of, of points that I may add, first of all, endorsing completely what Lana said about the human factor and the amount of human suffering that, that there has been in, in Syria and, and which, of course, has to be uh, at the core of, of uh, our proposals. I think we should not forget in seeking solutions for this conflict uh, on, only on how the conflict has evolved or where we are today. But we should, should remember that it started as a reaction of many people in Syria against the criminal regime. And this is, this is very important in seeking uh, sustainable solutions. Uh, and I think uh, um, if someone is aware of this, I, I, I was in Libya as, as a UN representative and had many opportunities to talk to staff on the Mistura, and I think they know very well, uh, and, and they should be given uh, uh, more trust from the international community and... and, and I, Who should be given more trust? As, uh, sorry? Who should be given the more UN trust? The UN envoy. Uh -huh. And uh, as, as Lana said, I think the, the Geneva uh, parameters are there. We shouldn't... Uh, I, I understand there is always a certain flexibility which is needed, but I think the, the, the uh, proposals in Geneva are there and, and uh, we shouldn't uh, uh, get too far from that because it will be difficult to, to achieve uh, a sustainable solution. Any solution, any uh, anything may work short term uh, uh, or might work short term, but this is uh, we are seeking long term solutions and keeping Assad in power. Frankly, I think it's it's. Uh, uh, um, it's not a long-term solution, in my opinion. Is the American insistence that he go, which um, Rex Tillerson repeated uh, just last week, um, is that helpful or harmful to the process of negotiation? I think it was pronounced prematurely against the advice of an important uh, regional NATO ally, Turkey. Uh, Turks felt that uh, a few more weeks, uh, maybe a couple of months, might have uh, led to a political process uh, by the Assad regime. Um, and I feel it's now unrealistic. I mean, the, the terrible suffering 
was partly caused by our hubris, um, our Western uh, overestimation of our transformational power, uh, ideological power of transforming um, uh, authoritarian societies into, into democracies. And then, of course, the illustration of how dangerous encouragement to people to fight for freedom is when you don't intend actually to back them. And we know what happened with the uh, Marsh Arabs during uh, mm-hmm. Gulf War One, And in Poland, we have some um, histories of uh, allies that don't come through as well. Um, uh, Assad uh, Mark I was, as uh, you were saying, a, a criminal, cruel regime, but that murdered in retail. Are you, are you speaking Assad about, about the, far, the father or about the early years of Bashar? Uh, early years of, of the son. Um, uh, Assad Mark II uh, was close to genocidal. Uh, and um, would you, if you were Assad, who did not yield to this political process when he was losing, would you now yield when you're winning? I don't think so. Sure. I think the stark reality is that uh, we as the West have uh, um, misjudged the situation. Um, President Putin has uh, uh, tactically very uh, aptly uh, uh, used our mistake. Iran is uh, is on the winning side as well. Um, And I think we'll be on the margins of decision-making. Let's talk a bit more about Putin and about Russia. It seems pretty clear that the Russians have managed to establish or reestablish themselves as a major player in, in Syria. But what about in the region? Is, is Russia now in the Middle East again in a big way to stay? And what is that going to mean going forward for the countries here, but for everybody else as well? Well, I think President Putin has shown that he sticks by his allies mm-hmm. and uh, it can't be said of everyone. Right. Right. You know, I think there's a little bit of a misunderstanding that Russia is suddenly a new player in the region. So historically, Russia. Well, that's why I said established or yeah. re-established itself. Exactly. So, so, so I think Russia has um, just, for 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 the record, Russia has always been an important player in the in the region historically, um, and I think again, you know, obviously in terms of. Uh, strategic interests in terms of protection, in terms of uh, shared values. Uh, m- most countries in the region value the presence of the United States primarily above all countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that will remain the case for the foreseeable future. I think what we witnessed under the last administration was a very stated policy that the Middle East region was something that should be um, deprioritized, if you like. There was the famous pivot to Asia and sort of refocusing efforts on uh, other core interests as defined um, by the administration, which we fully respected. And again, we take the view um, that was expressed by that administration and is being expressed by this one, that there has to be more of an element of burden sharing in terms of responsibility for the collective security of the region. Um, but I think, therefore, that Russia has, as you said, reestablished a, uh, a strategic partnership in the region. Having said that, uh, nothing will dominate or supersede uh, ever in history, I don't think. Um, the U.S., uh, they'll never say never, but uh, the U.S. importance to this part of the world and its historical importance to this part of the world. Radhika, I saw you shaking your head. Do you disagree? Because I think some regional allies, and not only in this region, will start spreading their bets because uh, they know that America cannot fight two wars simultaneously. Um, And they're not sure of America's commitment, particularly under... uh, 
a nationalistic president uh, to, to, to their security needs. Uh, and therefore, countries will be um, tacking uh, to a, 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 a less uh, dependent position. Do you see this kind of do you see this hedging happening happening already? I mean, what are the canaries in the coal mine that indicate that the process has already started? Um, well, I don't recall the previous visit by Saudi by the uh, king of Saudi Arabia to Moscow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, when, when you're a, an old ruler in, in, in this region, uh, um, I remember I was in the uh, EU uh, uh, Middle East peace team uh, in the early 2000, and when uh, George Bush uh, II decided to disengage, after the Clinton years, to disengage the U.S. from the peace process, the quartet was created, and Russia was a one of the members, uh, together with the UN, the EU, and the, and the US. So it's not a new actor, definitely it's not a new actor in the region. Um, I, although I think here I wouldn't use too much the word region, because Russia has more bilateral relations with different actors, and this may seem sometimes uh, uh, paradoxical as, as uh, having very strong relations. Uh, uh, we have mentioned uh, uh, Turkey or Egypt or Saudi Arabia or... Uh, but also Israel, of course. Uh, Israel, right? of course. So it's, it's more a number of bilateral mm -hmm. relations and kind of asymmetric alliances, mm -hmm. which is very interesting to analyze. Mm -hmm. And of course in the Gulf. And Radek, because you have the most intimate history with the Russians, I'm going to come back to you on this one. Do you see Putin's strategy in, in the Middle East and Syria and more broadly as part of a more general strategy that he's applying around the world? Well, it's driven uh, by domestic policy, obviously. The new deal with the Russian people is you may not be seeing your standard of living rising anymore, but I'll give you national glory. I'll make you feel important again, like you were in the days of the Soviet Union. And um, it's, a, it's a somewhat mixed picture. He won the war with Georgia. Uh, he won the Anschluss of Crimea, but he lost most of Ukraine. I think Syria has played out rather well for him at a relatively low cost. He, he firmly planted Russia's flag in a, in a very important region. And are the Americans handing him other gifts by withdrawing or re decreasing their support for other countries, which allows Russia to step in? Well, actually, you, to give credit where credit is due, it was President Obama who authorized the writing of contingency plans at NATO for the defense of Central Europe. And it was under President Obama that uh, the decision was taken to start a rotational presence, which is part of the cost that Russia is paying for its aggression mm -hmm. uh, against Ukraine. It has convinced NATO that traditional territorial defense in Europe is still not business that is finished, that is over. In that sense, we need to put up a bust of President Putin in at the NATO HQ because he has revived our alliance. But do you see, you know, the, the Chinese, for example, have gotten very good at moving into regions where the United States is either moving away or has never been interested in the first place with offers of assistance, of financial support, which then leads to political realignments as well. I mean, the Russians are already doing this to some extent in Venezuela, using oil and debt relief. Do you expect to see more than that in more of that, I should say, in Latin America, for example, places farther from Eurasia? 
the Russians have always been much less uh, adept at uh, um, maintaining alliances. When you look at Russia's periphery, for example, Belarus is an ally, but that's because Russia keeps the stranglehold over uh, Belarusian uh, economy. Kazakhstan also is defenseless vis-a-vis -vis Russia. So um, these are um, these are not entirely free relationships. Um, the U.S. has always found allies as a, as a force um, multiplier, whereas Russia has either had to coerce people or bribe them. Let's talk a bit about the, the U.S. frontally now. And what I'm curious to hear from the two of you who live here is how much things have changed in the last 10 months, how you rate President Trump's record. You know, despite all the sound and fury surrounding his administration, Trump actually hasn't managed to do much in the United States so far, at least when it comes to actually passing legislation or delivering on any of his major campaign promises. Um, but that may not be the case abroad. Um, do you, have there been critical shifts in U.S. policy um, toward the region since he took office? You know, a lot of, of, of countries here had very high hopes for the Trump administration and thought um, for a variety of reasons, including the fact that he seemed intent on diminishing the role that uh, human rights would play in bilateral discussions, um, that the United States, Washington would become a, a much more cooperative and supportive partner uh, under Trump. Have these hopes and, and others been borne out? Can I just um, correct the premise of the question? I think for countries like ours and the size that we are uh, and the reliance that we have on the United States for its strategic uh, protection and umbrella, particularly against aggressors like Iran, which we'll come to uh, in the region, but also the gamut of really huge, complex policy issues we face in the region. It's quite a turbulent one, as you know. Uh, I think we work with whatever U.S. administration the American people elect. Uh, so had it been a Clinton administration, the relationship would have been excellent. And with the President Trump administration, we worked very quickly uh, to forge uh, close ties because we don't have uh, other options for security in our region, and the U.S. relationship will always be a primary one for us. Having said that, I have to say I also need to push back a little bit on uh, what the expectations were. I don't think um, their focus on whether it was human rights or um, other civil society uh, questions was paramount in our minds. Not yours, maybe, but I know that the, the Saudis and the Egyptians, for example, were very excited about precisely this. Well, I can't, I can't speak on behalf of Saudi Arabia and Egypt, but I do know from a policy perspective what motivates both of those countries because we are a group of emerging like-minded countries in the region who really see the collective security through similar um, prisms, and that is uh, dealing with Iranian hegemony in the region, uh, the Iranian nuclear program, the ballistic missile program, uh, dealing with Iranian interference in the region, be it in uh, every frontier and theater you can think of in the region, from Syria to Yemen uh, to Iraq uh, to Afghanistan and elsewhere, uh, and of course Lebanon. Uh, and I think we also face a very fundamental existential threat because of terrorism. And I think on those issues, uh, which are defining security issues for us, we've seen very much eye to eye uh, with the current administration uh, on how to collectively tackle those. So again, you know, I would say that we would work with whatever U.S. administration uh, the American people elect, and we would try and forge a strong partnership. But we have found areas of convergence um, that we are moving very quickly forward on uh, because of that shared security view of the region that I think uh, 
coincides with the domestic political agenda that President Trump has put forward of an America first strategy, mm -hmm. which, by the way, again, historically is not new. Mm -hmm. um, it's perhaps less sort of Wilsonian in perspective in terms of uh, importing uh, um, idealist values of the United States model to the rest of the world. Um, but we've seen that swing back and forth through uh, decades of American history, and we're ready to move uh, and co-opt and uh, cooperate um, with whichever administration happens to be in power. So I think on those issues, uh, we have been collectively moving forward. President Trump's visit to Riyadh was actually uh, historic, I would say, more historic even than uh, uh, His Highness uh, King Salman's visit to uh, to Moscow, because there was a really collective definition there of defined security and addressing uh, the issues of extremism and terrorism, which are issue number one for our region. Have we seen action on the international agenda? Because you've mentioned the domestic agenda, which again, uh, I don't claim to be able to speak for. But on the international agenda, again, it was the President Trump administration that took a decision uh, to respond to the use of chemical weapons in Syria. Uh, I think setting a line in the sand that this wasn't going to be acceptable uh, as part of the tools of, of warfare in Syria. Uh, on the Korean Peninsula, which are also developments that we follow very, very closely, uh, it was a US-led initiative that managed to get a resolution adopted only a couple of months ago, imposing some of the strongest sanctions we've seen on the North Korean regime, uh, both in terms of oil exports, textile imports, uh, labor, North Korean labor, a big driver of the North Korean economy. So those are just two uh, foreign policy uh, wins, if you like, uh, that do ta tally with our uh, shared collective security interests that I think were very, very important. And on Iran, and I, I'm sure you want to get to uh, the administration's uh, policy towards the uh, JCPOA, but on Iran, I think this administration has recognized uh, the failings of the nuclear deal. And again, this was a deal that we were not involved with in, in setting up of the terms, and we went along with at the request of the US administration when we were brought into the conversation. Um, but I think this this administration has recognized that the deal essentially didn't address fundamental security concerns of the region in terms of Iran's behavior, uh, and that in fact it emboldened Iran uh, to continue a very, very aggressive expansionist policy in the region. Uh, so on Iran, I feel that um, whatever direction the U.S. administration takes on the deal, which is obviously their uh, decision, uh, the recognition that Iran's behavior in the region, uh, that the ballistic missile program that it's developing, uh, some would say comparable to the North Korean uh, ballistic missile program, uh, are fundamental threats not only to regional security but also international security. So on those areas of convergence, I do feel um, there has been some very good frank uh, exchanges. And obviously on counterterrorism operations, um, we've always had a consistent partnership with the United States from the previous administration, and that continues today. So let's now talk about Iran, um, and not just through the, the, the lens of U.S. policy, but Iran as it um, affects the region and, and as you all think about it directly. Um, on the one hand, there have been some interesting shifts inside the country, that is Iran, um, in, in recent months. For example, President Rouhani seems to finally be managing to increase his control over some of the more radical elements in the country, like the Revolutionary Guard. There are steps that, been taken, that he's taken to limit their, um, their economic power, which is vast in the country, um, which he couldn't be doing without the support of the Supreme Leader as well. And that was something that no one thought he'd be capable of doing early on in his tenure. And then on 
the other hand, we have Trump who has uh, declared that Tehran is not complying with the nuclear deal, um, although in typical fashion he hasn't actually done anything about it. What is your view of Iran today compared to, say, several years ago, given the JCPOA, given the changes that may slowly be happening um, un- under Rouhani? Is it the threat that you saw just a few years ago? Um, uh, is there um, potential for bilateral or regional progress? Um, or are they as threatening as, as ever? Bernardino, do you want to take this one? I mean, as, as, as an observer, I'm a training diplomat, so I'm not dealing with these issues. On, on, But I can tell you as an observer, I think that uh, although some of these uh, encouraging uh, moves uh, have been uh, mentioned uh, by several observers, uh, um, I think uh, the, the main source of concern uh, in the region is still uh, Yemen war or Syria or negative influence in, in uh, Palestine, which uh, recently, thanks to this agreement between Hamas and Fatah, is, is uh, changing. So I think these are the, the core issues, uh, the, the, the main concerns. And, and I have the impression, as, a, as an observer, that these are not yet, uh, you, you cannot see substantial changes in these ones. And Radek, what happens if Congress takes this challenge that Trump has thrown to them? He decertified Iran's uh, compliance, but of course refused to impose the sanctions, reimpose the sanctions himself, kicking that to the members of Congress. They, it's now up to them to decide what to do with it. It will only take 50 votes, not 60, to reimpose sanctions. What do you think is going to happen there, and what happens if the sanctions come back? An ancient principle of Polish foreign policy is to let um, the uh, Middle East be ruled by the United States as impartially and as effectively as hitherto. Mm-hmm. Um, from our point of view, the main um, check on the growth of uh, Iranian power was uh, Iraq, which the United States spent two trillions removing. Fair point. Bernardino, I want to turn to another issue with you, and that's the the regional dispute with Qatar. So this is arguably the biggest diplomatic crisis in the GCC in in years, if not not longer. How do you see this this split between Qatar on the one hand and the the rest of the GCC and and Egypt and a few other countries ending? I mean, you're you're a diplomat. Um, You know that negotiations only succeed when both parties get something that they want or need. Do you see that happening in this case? Well, uh, what I see is that uh, uh, after strong attention at the beginning of of, uh, the crisis, uh, uh, this, this is uh, becoming uh, uh, almost uh, a routine, and, and, and uh, at least I, I don't see uh, much uh, uh, anxiety, uh, in, in, at least in this country, uh, about the issue. Uh, and this is a pity because uh, maybe Qatar is, is uh, uh, losing uh, the opportunity in, in, in a crucial time to, to address the concerns that exist here and in other countries involved in, in the crisis. But I agree with you. I mean, uh, the solution can only be political. The solution can, can only be negotiations. And uh, I hope that they will uh, address 
soon uh, uh, these concerns and it will be possible to overcome the crisis. But you're, as an observer, are you seeing anything that makes you optimistic or are we stuck in a deadlock? I, I don't see, uh, you know, the, the, to the best of my knowledge, and again, I'm not directly involved in, in these issues, I can talk only as an observer. Um, these, these, there, there are concerns on the one hand affecting uh, support to a number of actors, uh, 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 extremist, radical actors that, that are a focus of concern, especially in a moment in which uh, uh, some uh, reforms in uh, going in, in a very moderate uh, direction, as we have seen in Saudi Arabia, are our main priorities. Uh, in, in some countries in the region, uh, and on the other hand, uh, a previous commitment that uh, uh, should be implemented. And, and what I hear is that con the, the concerns affect both. So these are the two elements that, that I, I guess have to be addressed uh, if, if they want to overcome the crisis. Lana, I know that uh, as a member of a government that's uh, directly involved in the dispute, you're constrained in what you can say, but Not at all. what impact will it have on the region? Um, and on the GCC in particular, if this dispute is not resolved? I think the starting point, one has to understand uh, the game as it looked uh, to us. And it was essentially, uh, you know, an analogy would be playing a football game where one member of the team was kept scoring on goals. Uh, I think that was the starting point for um, where this uh, erupted uh, into a, a cut of relations. And of course, again... And tell us what you're referring to there. Well, More the support of extremism and terrorism yeah. in the region, I think, was a, a driving, as you've heard uh, this entire discussion, collective security concern. Uh, and beyond that, I mean, I think, you know, uh, in many ways, um, the media have um, focused a little bit on uh, the characterization of this being about uh, the Al Jazeera network or free speech. But actually what this is much more fundamentally about is, uh, and again this goes to some of the earlier discussions we've been having today about incitement to hatred and, and violence, this goes much more fundamentally to do we allow our reason, region to fall into uh, chaos and turmoil or do we, have, do we have to collectively agree on what our definition of security looks like uh, and the nation state in the Arab world looks like. And I think we were having fundamental disagreements about uh, those trends in our region. So I think that was the premise and the starting point. Secondly, this didn't just happen six months ago. This has been building up, as Bernardino uh, referred to, over many, many years. So this is something that has been uh, dealt with privately. And when we were unable to deal with it within the mechanisms of uh, the GCC and the agreement that was signed there, the Riyadh Agreement in 2014, uh, we had to take it to the next diplomatic uh, escal escalatory level, uh, which was cutting of ties. Uh, having said that, of course, uh, Qatar is a uh, Arab country. Uh, the Qatari people are very affiliated to the peoples in our region. Uh, it's part of the Gulf. Uh, there are historic ties. Uh, this is a fundamental issue with government policy. It's not an issue with the Qatari people. In the same way that our issue with Iran is fundamentally an issue of the regime's policy uh, and their desire to export their, their revolution regionally and control the Shia populations around the region. It's not an issue with the Iranian people, who, again, we have long historic ties with. Uh, so I think you're right to, to describe this as a, as a uh, treading water status quo because our, our concerns are very clear. They've been relayed uh, to the Qatari government via the Kuwaiti mediation efforts uh, and through many other channels. Uh, and I think we have been seeing some uh, fruits of those endeavors. So I would say that 
um, you know, U.S. efforts to step up cooperation uh, on countering extremism with the Qataris uh, is a positive uh, step in the right direction. Having tre U.S. Treasury officials embedded in uh, the Qatari financial system is a positive step in the right direction. The MOU that was signed to step up efforts to counter terrorism is a step in the right direction. Uh, so I think these are all um, positive indicators that these are the kinds of measures that we need to see much more of. Uh, to reassure the countries that are really at the front line of this extremist terrorist threat uh, that we're not scoring any more own goals going forward, that we're one team. And I think until we feel that reassurance, it's going to be very difficult to take this forward. But again, we're very behind uh, all the mediation efforts to do so. Uh, and having said that, our collective understanding of what our security means to us uh, in the sense of who we support in this region, uh, in the sense of not condoning extremist groups, not allowing incitement to violence, jihad, and hatred to uh, be propagated by any of our uh, social media and media mm -hmm. networks is a very fundamental first step in that. And I will point to, uh, and I have to say it, uh, the very brave steps taken by Saudi Arabia in this regard. They've made a historic decision, uh, you know, led by uh, the Crown Prince, to moderate Islam. Uh, that's a huge global undertaking that will have ramifications. It's a tipping point for the region. It's a tipping point for the world. Uh, and I think we have to support and get behind that effort. Um, because for us, it's not a the theological or theoretical debate. The future of where our countries go really very much depends on the outcome. Well, we're almost out of time. So let me pick up on that last note to ask you a, a, a more general question that will, I hope, let us close on, on an upbeat tone or mood. You've just mentioned one very nascent but potentially extremely promising trend. Um, what are the other important positive trends that you, that you Bernardino, that you Roddick see in the region that you think uh, are being um, overlooked in the West, say, and in the United States that uh, people outside the, reader, uh, the region aren't even aware of? Well, I think the um, development of um uh, transportation based on an electric engine rather than a, uh, a, an internal combustion engine will change the world. And I am very impressed with um, the fact that, uh, for example, UAE has already some years ago started uh, adjusting to, to the reality which is coming. And if I understand correctly, um, uh, the ambassador herself was involved in launching the uh, renewable energy, global renewable energy center, of which, of course, uh, this area is also richly uh, endowed in. Um, and, uh, and we know that oil gives great wealth, but it's also a curse because it, com because it concentrates power in, in the hands of the few. And so the... Um, the, the, the diversification of economies mm -hmm. hopefully should also uh, uh, lead to positive political developments. Mm -hmm. Lana? I'd like to echo that. By 2020, our target is that 80% uh, of our GDP will be non-oil sector. So we're very much preparing for a, a post-oil future. And I think uh, the post-oil world will hugely impact the economy of this country, but all oil-producing countries around the world and receiving countries in a way that we haven't actually uh, fully assessed globally, uh, but it's very much in the front line of our thinking here, which is why we're also preparing for what's being described as the fourth industrial revolution. Uh, we've recently appointed a minister of AI, and I think our embracing of that exact technology
techn technological change that is coming um, does put our country among the first in the front line for preparing for those changes. Uh, I think that's incredibly important to us because, as uh, I've said, 60% of the Arab region are in the youth demographic, 70% of Saudi Arabia are under the age of 30. If we don't do that, if we don't offer these opportunities and the right labor market and the right educational uh, market for uh, the young in our region, then we're doomed uh, to failure as a region. Uh, so I think, again, this comes back to a very uh, existential issue for us, and I think our government's facing it in the head-on in the right way. I'd say the one trend that I don't think the West appreciates enough, specifically in our country, but I think other countries in the region uh, are very much embracing this, and I think we're actually becoming a front line in this, is we've also very much uh, co-opted women as equal partners on, on this journey. Uh, we know, for example, that peace agreements we were talking about Syria fail after five years when women are not at the table, and they have a 35% chance of lasting 15 years and longer when women are at the table. Uh, we know that we could add $12 trillion to the global economy by 2025 uh, if women are fully integrated into our economies. And I think in the UAE, we're 100% singing from that song sheet, and that's not appreciated by the West. And in fact, I'd say I don't think that model's emulated enough in the West. So I'll end with that. I think that's a real uh, benchmark for us that we've managed to achieve. Well, to support that, I can tell you, you have spent a couple of days with us and our students. You have seen how the majority of our students are female and how articulated they mm -hmm. are. It's, a, it's happening already. It's not uh, something that Lana is saying because she's the ambassador. And, is a, an exercise of public diplomacy. You have seen, and, and as we, as, as I can see every day, these more changes that maybe have been overlooked. Uh, um, let me insist on on the Saudi Arabia uh, mm -hmm. uh, transformation because I think is 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 important. I I have been for years working in this region, and if I was told three years ago uh, that all these recent decisions about cinemas or about women driving, all this is very impressive, but I, I remember when the decision about the religious police mm. was taken. Mm. I was shocked. Mm. I was shocked. And not because And for our listeners who may not be familiar, tell, tell well, us what exactly remove, happened. To remove the powers uh, from, from the religious police so they cannot arrest people, they cannot uh, uh, intervene without uh, agreement with other uh, uh, entities uh, and forces in, in the country. But it, it was a, a huge step. And many things are going on in Saudi Arabia. Of course, I can understand very well that, that many people in the West are still skeptical. Saudi Arabia has been a big issue for many years. And, 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 but I think, uh, seeing in perspective all these changes, uh, all these public statements, uh, um, I'm, I'm starting to believe that, that uh, it, it is going to happen. And seeing from the UAE, which is a country that has been uh, consistently following this, open uh, uh, society uh, for a while, I, I think that Saudi Arabia has chosen to follow that model. If I can mention just very briefly um, some other examples, taxes is coming to the region, uh, and taxes historically, and we know it very well in the West, uh, what it means, uh, we used to say, when you pay taxes, you have citizens. Uh, this is starting now, this is, is a big change. And then, in general, uh, uh, I remember very well when the uh, Arab Spring started, uh, Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid had been saying from uh, uh, the UAE, this is coming. And if we are, uh, don't change governance in the region, many countries are going to suffer. And I pay tribute here 
not only to, to many decisions that were taken before here, but for the role that Lana played personally with elections uh, in, the, in the early 2000, uh, uh, and, and how many changes happened. There is a, a, a very young region, uh, as Lana said, most of the population are very young, and governance has to change uh, to change overall in, in, in the region. And this is happening, and this has been in this country happening for a while, but uh, the others will have to, to, to change definitely governance and to think of these young uh, citizens. Well, I feel like our conversation is just beginning, um, so it pains me to say that that's all the time that we have for today. Um, so I'd like to first thank the three of you, um, our wonderful guests, Lana Nusaiba, Bernardino Leon, Radek Sikorsky, um, for participating in Foreign Policy's podcast. And I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks very much. <laughs>